This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. We're going to be looking at HIV on today's podcast. And to help me, we have Jess Pelletier from Washington University School of Medicine. Hey, Jess. Hey, Britt. Thanks so much for having me back on the podcast. I'm excited to be here to talk about HIV post-exposure prophylaxis, which we'll call PEP from here forward. Jess, let's start with some background. How common is HIV? Great question. So globally, 0.5% of people are infected with HIV, and there are 5,000 new daily infections. Based on recent statistics, the incidence in the U.S. is rising. There was actually an increase in new cases from 15.6 to 21 per 100,000 people between 2016 and 2019. Global incidence overall is actually decreasing due to greater availability of antiretroviral therapy or ART, prevention programs, use of barrier protection, circumcision for men, and the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. The mortality is decreasing due to wider availability of ART. This disease causes a great degree of morbidity. On top of that, the average yearly healthcare cost for one individual with HIV approaches $20,000 and it's closer to $41,000 for those with CD4 counts less than 50. In light of these statistics, preventing new infections is incredibly important. I couldn't agree more. We're going to be seeing HIV in the ED. We have a major role in diagnosing this infection, treating these patients, but what are the actual numbers when it comes to exposures? We're going to go through the risk of HIV seroconversion in the absence of PEP for non-occupational exposures per act. The risk is about 0.5 to 3.38% for receptive anal intercourse, so the highest risk, followed by 0.06 to 0.16% for insertive anal intercourse, 0.08 to 0.19% for receptive penile vaginal intercourse, 0.05 to 0.1% for insertive penile vaginal intercourse. So all of these do pose a substantial risk per act. Oral intercourse is actually not considered high risk unless there are genital piercings involved. And if one of the individuals has coexistent syphilis, this can certainly increase the risk of transmission. The seroconversion rates are thought to be low here because of a low percentage of CD4 cells antiviral antibodies, and thick mucosa in the oral cavity. The presence of ulcers or trauma to the rectum or vagina or any concomitant sexually transmitted infections increase the risk of transmission per sexual act. Injection drug use with a contaminated needle has a seroconversion rate of 0.7 to 0.8%. The risk of HIV seroconversion for occupational exposures is 0.3% for percutaneous injury and 0.09% for mucous membrane exposure. For percutaneous occupational exposures to HIV-infected blood, the risk of seroconversion is higher if any of the following risk factors are present. If the needle involved is hollow bore, if there's visible contamination of blood on the needle, if the needle was inside of the patient's vasculature, if the source patient has untreated HIV, especially in the early or late stages, or if the source patient has a high HIV viral load. Lastly, if the source patient died of AIDS within two months of exposure, 
then the individual exposed is at extremely high risk of HIV seroconversion. Lots of different numbers there. We'll list all of these in the show notes with some references. But we do have a way to drastically reduce that risk of HIV. Jess, what do the data show when it comes to post-exposure prophylaxis? Well, in animal studies, PEP reduces seroconversion by 89% if given within 72 hours of exposure. A case control study in healthcare workers found an 81% reduction in seroconversion if zidovudine was started shortly after exposure. The majority started the medication within four hours of exposure and continued taking it for four weeks, which is the recommended full course of medication. So it's definitely worth the side effects and the cost to prescribe PEP. Jess, what are the primary indications for PEP after a potential exposure? So we'll go through the indications for PEP for both occupational and non-occupational exposures. We refer to occupational exposure PEP as OPEP and non-occupational as NPEP. In either case, we should be administering PEP within 72 hours of exposure and ideally within the first two hours. OPEP indications include percutaneous injury, such as with a needle or a sharp object, or exposure of mucous membranes or non-intact skin, like if it's cracked or cut, to one of the following potentially infectious fluids, amniotic fluid, CSF, pericardial fluid, peritoneal fluid, pleural fluid, semen or vaginal secretions, or synovial fluid. Other body fluids aren't considered to carry HIV unless they're visibly contaminated with blood. In terms of NPEP, patients who are at high risk and are absolutely in need of NPEP include those who have sustained a human bite from an individual with visible blood in their mouth that breaks the skin, if they have a needle stick injury with a hollow bore needle or a needle contaminated with blood or infected body fluids, receptive intercourse, whether anal or vaginal, or sharing needles. Medium risk exposures for which we should weigh the risks and benefits of PEP include oral anal, oral penile, or oral vaginal contact, whether or not ejaculation occurred. Remember that we have to consider whether there are oral or genital ulcerations or broken mucosa or skin, concomitant sexually transmitted infections, blood exposure, or if the source patient has a high HIV viral load when making a decision about these medium risk exposures. Low-risk exposures for which NPEP is not indicated include human bites that don't draw blood, mutual masturbation with no associated skin breakdown or bleeding, if someone has a needle stick injury with a solid bore needle or a needle that's not soiled with blood or potentially infectious body fluids, or oral, oral contact, so kissing, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation with intact mucosa, and lastly, saliva exposure to closed skin for example, from being spit upon. You don't need to give PEP if someone is already compliant with PrEP, but you should give PEP if the patient isn't taking their PrEP for one week before exposure or if they're non-compliant with their PrEP regimen on a regular basis. That's pretty straightforward. We will have some tables in the show notes with references. How about testing for HIV after a potential exposure? If you can't test the source patient, then you should assume that they are HIV positive. But if you can test the source patient, you should obtain the following. 
First, you need to get their HIV status. So you need to obtain enough blood and the right color tubes so that you can do a reflex genotype and viral load if the HIV test is positive. Make sure you talk to your nurse about what test tubes you need for this. You need to test the source patient for hepatitis B, including surface antigen and antibody, as well as core antigen. We should test them for hepatitis C antibody, and lastly, for sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis in non-occupational HIV exposure situations. So you'll need to obtain testing from your exposed patient for the following things and counsel them that they'll need to follow up with either primary care or infectious disease for repeat testing. The first test they need at baseline and then with repeat testing is HIV. They'll need to be tested again at four to six weeks, three months, and six months, whether they had a non-occupational or an occupational exposure. Your patient will need a CBC for occupational exposures only based on guidelines, and that will need to happen at baseline and again at two weeks. For either non-occupational or occupational exposures, the patient should be tested for a comprehensive metabolic panel at baseline and at four to six weeks. They will need testing for either type of exposure at baseline and at six months for hepatitis B, including surface antigen and antibody, as well as core antigen. Hepatitis C antibody testing should be done for both types of exposures at baseline and at six months. If the patient had a sexual non-occupational exposure, they will need testing at baseline and at four to six weeks for chlamydia, gonorrhea, pregnancy, and syphilis. And syphilis testing will need to be repeated at six months. Note that guidelines vary, but this is kind of a summary of the most common guideline recommendations. And we will have all of these recommendations in a table in the show notes. You need to treat your NPEP patients for potential concomitant exposures like gonorrhea, chlamydia, etc. at their first visit depending on the situation. So definitely consider administering ceftriaxone, doxycycline, and things like hepatitis B vaccination and immunoglobulin if they're not already vaccinated. Remember to update tetanus status for occupational exposure patients with needle stick injuries. You brought up a couple really important points there. The first one, if you can't test that source patient, then just assume they're positive. The testing for other conditions, obviously very important for us. That can potentially change our management. Now, with all of that information, what's your approach for testing when it comes to HIV? Absolutely, Britt. So the testing algorithm may differ by institution, so make sure you refer to your local protocols. But the recommended HIV testing algorithm, according to CDC guidelines, is that we start with a fourth-generation HIV test, which is usually an antigen-antibody combination immunoassay. It's an enzyme-linked immunoassay, or ELISA, and it does come in a rapid form. So after we do the rapid fourth-generation HIV test, if the patient is negative, then HIV is excluded. If the rapid fourth generation test is positive, then we need to follow this up with an HIV 1 and 2 antibody differentiation immunoassay. This is a Western blot or indirect immunofluorescence or IFA test. If the HIV 1 is negative or the HIV 2 is indeterminate negative, we follow this up with an HIV 1 NAT or nucleic acid amplification test. Note that there's actually no approved NAT for HIV-2 in the United States, 
So we can only have HIV-1 NATs available. If the HIV-1 NAT is negative, then the HIV is excluded. But if HIV-1 NAT is positive, then unfortunately your patient has HIV. So bouncing back to the HIV-1 and 2 antibody differentiation immunoassay, we discussed what we should do if HIV-1 was negative or HIV-2 was indeterminate negative. What about if HIV-1 or 2 or both are positive? Unfortunately, that means that HIV infection is confirmed for your patient. We will have a copy of the recommended HIV testing algorithm from the CDC in the show notes. Jess, let's get to treatment. We're only going to cover PEP today. We're not going to dive into PrEP. That's another topic. When we look at PEP, what are the options? Yeah, so PrEP, as we mentioned, needs to be given in advance of HIV exposure. And that usually consists of daily tenofovir and amtricitabine, which come as a combination pill known as Truvada. I'm sorry to use a brand name here, but it is a little bit easier. So we actually use Truvada as part of the PEP regimen as well. For healthy adults with normal creatinine clearance, they need to receive Truvada 200 milligrams once daily, plus raltegravir, which is an integrase inhibitor, 400 milligrams PO twice daily, or dolutegravir, which is in the same class of medication, 50 milligrams PO daily. So again, it's Truvada plus an integrase inhibitor. For creatinine clearance less than or equal to 59 milliliters per minute, Truvada must be avoided. Again, Truvada should not be used in patients with poor creatinine clearance. The appropriate regimen for these individuals consists of zidovudine with lamivudine with renal dose adjustments plus an integrase inhibitor, so raltegravir or dolutegravir. For children 2 to 12 with normal creatinine clearance, tenofovir, emtricitabine, and raltegravir should be given together, dose adjusted for age and weight. For children 28 days to 2 years, we use zidovudine and lamivudine oral solutions plus raltegravir or lopinavir-ritonavir oral solution, dose adjusted for age and weight. For children less than 28 days, an infectious disease specialist should likely be consulted. For pregnant women or women who may become pregnant, we should be using Truvada plus raltegravir. Pregnant or breastfeeding women will need to pump and dump until they are cleared by infectious disease or they should discontinue breastfeeding while taking these medications. There are alternative regimens available for each category of patient by age, but some of these alternative drugs have more side effects. You can view these alternative regimens in the CDC clinical practice guidelines, and we'll provide a link in the show notes. You did such a better job of saying those medications. I always manage to mess them up. But some of these medicines can cause some major issues. You had already mentioned the issue with decreased creatinine clearance, but what are the other contraindications? So major contraindications to PEP would be active HIV infection, since PEP administration will breed resistance, which we would like to avoid. So you should confirm that your patient is HIV negative at baseline before you initiate PEP. You also need to ensure that they are not infected with hepatitis B, since we can make them sick by giving them PEP. The following drugs are contraindicated in pregnant women, didanosine, efavirenz, and indinavir in trimesters 2 and 3, as well as nevirapine and stabudine. 
As you probably noticed, most of these are second line agents anyway, so hopefully we won't be using them. Major drug-drug interactions to consider when prescribing PEP include antacids, anti-tuberculosis medications, and supplements containing aluminum, calcium, iron, magnesium, and zinc. These interactions occur with first-line PEP medications, so we need to really review our patient's medication list and ask them what over-the-counter medications they're taking, including things for acid reflux or vitamins that could make it difficult for these medications to work properly. There are a ton of drug interactions with alternative PEP medications, so if you have to prescribe a second-line agent, you should probably be talking with your pharmacist. How about these side effects? What should we tell our patients to look out for? Well, most side effects are self-limited or mild, but there is a decent list for each of these medications. Dolutegravir is associated with abnormal dreams, depression, diarrhea, dizziness, fatigue, headache, nausea, insomnia, rash, and vertigo. Emtricitabine can cause depression, diarrhea, dizziness, elevated CK and amylase levels, headache, hepatic steatosis, hypercholesterolemia, insomnia, nausea, and rash. Raltegravir has been associated with dizziness, fatigue, headache, insomnia, and nausea. And lastly, tenofovir is associated with asthenia or depression, headache, nausea, nephrotoxicity, rash, and transaminitis. As you can see, a lot of these medications cause depression, dizziness, nausea, and rashes. Rare and severe side effects include hepatotoxicity from dolutegravir, lactic acidemia from Truvada, and Stevens-Johnson syndrome from raltegravir. Again, these are very rare things, but we need to have them on our radar. Make sure that you're referring your patients to infectious disease or the local health department once you start these medications for follow-up testing. Remember, they're going to need repeat testing at multiple intervals, starting at four to six weeks after they see you in the emergency department, and even two weeks for a repeat CBC for your patients with occupational exposures. You've made this very digestible, very straightforward, but I know there are many physicians out there who are not prescribing PEP, even if it's indicated. What have you found are the major issues when it comes to prescribing PEP? So based on data we have at this time, lack of comfort and knowledge make many of us hesitant to provide PEP. Two strategies that have been identified to help improve provider comfort with PEP include clear guidelines for the first-line PEP drugs, their indications, and sexual health support, as well as improving providers' knowledge, practice, and attitudes surrounding PEP. We've addressed both of these points today, and we hope that's been helpful for you. I'd really encourage you to consider prescribing PEP to your next patient who has high-risk non-occupational or occupational exposures. If you're ever uncomfortable and you have additional questions that we didn't cover in our podcast or that you can't find the answers to in the show notes, you can call the PEP hotline anytime for help at 888-448-4911. We'll also include links to several helpful articles, including toolkits that you can use in your emergency department to educate other providers about prescribing PEP. Jess, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know I feel a lot more comfortable about PEP, the indications, how to prescribe it. I'm sure everyone else does. And we will have several tables and an algorithm in the show notes. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. 
Stay safe and healthy, everyone. 